My name is Ricky Day, and this is Nothing to Lose But Yourself. What's going on, everybody? Good day to you, wherever you may be. Once again, my name is Ricky Day, R-I-C-K-Y-D-A-Y, and this is the podcast, Nothing to Lose But Yourself. Um, As always, I want to start with my gratitude. I thank you so much for tuning in and supporting and listening. You don't have to do it, but you guys are doing it, and you're doing it in strong numbers. So I'm very grateful, and I, I appreciate you guys for that, and thank you for that. And particularly today, because it's been a very, very challenging week for me and a couple of days here. I mean, challenging, like the kind of week that makes some people have a breakdown, but I'm a little stronger than that. And I've got a beautiful network of family and friends who support me. And most importantly, I've got my Lord, my Savior, Jesus Christ to lean on. And trust me, I've been leaning heavily uh, the past 48 hours or so. So thank you listening because you're part of that support group. You are brightening my spirit just knowing that you're out there. And why do I know you're out there? Because I read the stats and I know how many people are listening and how you're sharing and how this thing is steadily growing and I don't take any of it for granted. So I thank you all so much. I appreciate you so much. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, continue to grow together. To that end, by the way, the Instagram for the podcast is nothing to lose but yourself. My personal social media is Ricky Day, R-I-C-K-Y-D-A-Y on Instagram and on uh, Twitter. And I'm going to share something new with you this week. My cash app. Mm-hmm. It's dollar sign R-I-C-K-Y-D-A-Y. Why am I sharing that? Because this is a labor of love that I do out of the kindness of my heart, not in my own pocket. It ain't necessarily cheap to do this, and I don't have any intention of charging you for it. But if you're loving the podcast and you're being blessed by it and you want to contribute to the cash app, I welcome that. I appreciate that. And who knows, we continue to have this great time together that we're having and build this community the way we're building it. Who knows? I might get picked up and be in a larger platform. I sort of like doing it independently, though, following my own rules and my own spirit. But, you know, we'll see where life, the podcast and God takes us. Right. Well, today's episode is one that I'm excited about. Of course, I say that every week because I'm excited about the episodes every week. Why wouldn't I be doing this as a labor of love? I'm doing this as a calling and I'm doing it to talk to amazing people about their amazing lives and inspire you to build your own amazing story. My guest this week is my second guest of Women's History Month. And what a woman this is. Uh, this episode is all about faith and it's faith from the lens of one of America's most dynamic and prophetic theologians faith leaders and pastors. I'm talking about Bishop Yvette Flunder. We're going to talk about all kinds of things during this conversation from her life and career. Uh, we might touch on Sylvester and her time there in San Francisco where she's still based. And we're of course going to talk a lot about Jesus, about ministry, about God, about love and about you. So after this brief announcement, sit back, relax and enjoy my conversation with the Bishop Yvette Flunder. Hello. Wait, what? You haven't heard the new podcast, Mojo Girl Madness? 
Good news! Season 1 is now available for binging. Mojo Girl Madness is a mad pod with interviews, rants, and stories about sex, relationships, family, divorce, politics, showbiz, and mostly your mojo. Find Mojo Girl Madness wherever you get your pods or at mojogirlmadness.com. And now, back to the main event. Love you madly. My guest today is a San Francisco native who has served her call to service through prophetic action and ministry for justice for over 30 years. This call to blend proclamation, worship service, and advocacy on behalf of those most marginalized in church and society led to the founding of the City of Refuge, United Church of Christ, in 1991. In 2003, she was consecrated presiding bishop of the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries, a multi-denominational coalition of over 100 primarily African-American Christian leaders and laity. Additionally, she serves on the board of Star King School for the Ministry, among others, and has taught at many theological schools, including Chicago Theological Seminary. She's a graduate of the Certificate of Ministry and Masters of Arts program at Pacific School of Religion and received her Doctor of Ministry in San Francisco's Theological Seminary. She's also an award-winning gospel music artist and author of Where the Edge Gathers, a Theology of Homiletic and Radical Inclusion. I am so honored, so grateful, and so happy to welcome to the podcast the esteemed Reverend Dr. Yvette Flunder. We call her Bishop Flunder. How are you, Bishop Flunder? I'm doing very well, Brother Ricky. I'm doing extremely well. Good. Well, Praise, that is thanks and glory to God. <laughs> glory to God for sure, and that is good news indeed. In the times we are living in, I don't. I when I ask that yeah. question now, I'm waiting with bated breath for the answer. So yes. I'm I'm so happy to be in conversation with you today. Um, so Yvette Flunder, the human being, is doing well. How have these times treated you these last few months personally first? Let's just start there. Well, I'm adjusting to uh, quarantine. Uh, it is good to be in the company of people that I love. I don't know exactly what people would do in this time <laughs> if they were walled up with folks that they didn't, you know, didn't love. So, yeah. so that is a blessing. I'm grateful to God. Um, I'm adjusting. I'm a, a people person, and not being, and I'm also very tactile. Mm. And so, being uh, away physically from my congregation and my staff uh, in ways that I'm accustomed to being is a challenge for me. Uh, I love community, mm-hmm. and uh, also. I have some deja vu experiences in this pandemic after 30 years plus of uh, being engaged in HIV pandemic on every level um, to include an enormous amount of death and sickness, but also uh, watching a progression and dealing with the negativity often centered around misinformation and poor theology. I'm experiencing some, some deja vu. Yeah. <laughs> That's in tough. this current atmosphere. Uh, but I have to say that, you know, my, my own affirmation is that I'm blessed. I am learning uh, when you're, as the old folks used to say, when your anchor holds and grips a solid rock. Yes, indeed. It can see you through uh, so many different kinds of shifts and changes. My hope is built. I like that hymn too. Mm-hmm. On Jesus' love, as I say it and righteousness, you know, and justice 
is the heart of God and at the heart of God. And so I find myself engaged again in miscellaneous justice movements in and around this epidemic, in and around this quarantine, in and around this uh, almost surreal uh, political atmosphere. Uh, but the playbook is not new. So we just have, there's some new tricks. So we have to come up with some new trick responses <laughs> <laughs> well, we, in order to uh, move through. So that's sort of a, a larger picture of how I'm doing. I understand. Yeah. And we definitely have to come up with some new tricks. Uh, pastor Mike Walvern, by the way, my pastor and friend says, hello. He sends his love. Um, but yes. He, give him my best. I will. He and I have these conversations with some consistency and yeah, in many ways we've been here before. Uh, but mm -hmm. my pushback is in many ways we haven't because I think this is a truly an authoritarian mm -hmm. move that we're sitting in and it yes. easily could go either way. And we need to be very, yes, very mindful of that. Um, now, yeah. what's life been like for Bishop Yvette Flunder, the theologian, pastor, and social justice warrior? I know that's a little bit different. I mean, they, the two are in the same body, but the yeah. human beings moving one way, the theologian, the social justice warrior has got a lot of work on her plate, I can imagine as well. How are you? How's the fellowship, the congregations? Well, I've been involved in ministry uh, much more than half of my life. <laughs> and the consequence of which is I can see patterns. When you live long enough, you can see patterns. This is not a place that we have not been before. Uh, they're just different players, different patterns. That's a good way for me to put it. Um, and I am I feel blessed to have seen uh, all the way from, you know, the 60s, 70s, uh, civil rights engagements to the LGBT rights engagements, the women's rights engagements, until we reach the point where we are seeing the tip of the iceberg of, of um, the drowning of white supremacy, you know, and there's a, a huge, desperate human cry. Uh, in the atmosphere that we are in. It is desperate because it knows very clearly that its time is coming to an end. This whole concept of superiority and manifest destiny and, and power over dynamics that are somehow or other supported by God. That is amazing, you know, to me. But it's not new. This is not new. Mm -hmm. Just about every war, almost all of the bloodshed and all of the the uh, ways in which people have taken over people's lives or people's lands has somehow been blamed on God. You know, it sort of sanctifies it. You know, when you're doing dirt, sure enough, you Absolutely. know, if you can do dirt in the name of God. That makes it, you know, sanctified. But what I'm also seeing because of how long, how many decades I've been in this work is a wonderful progression. And, and uh, just one case in point, there's much I could say about it. Our people, people, who have been traditionally marginalized in this country, people of color, immigrant people, uh, LGBT people, women, women's rights. Uh, what I am seeing that makes this so very different is probably best described in what I watched happen in the Black Lives Matter marches and movements. First of all, the sustainability. <laughs> it wasn't a one day affair, At all. you know? Yeah. 
it just went on and it went on and it showed up in another city and it showed up in another city. And probably the most incredible thing is that Black Lives Matter marches were happening in other countries. Mm -hmm. They didn't speak English and they had to say Black Lives Matter in another language. You know, and it was some cases where there were very few black people in the Black Lives Matter. Including here in the States. Oh, it was incredible. And then the other thing that that blessed my whole socks off was watching people in the streets that were, of course, black lives, but the children of white supremacists, the offspring, second, third generation of people who did so much evil to people of color just because they were people of color, their children became a physical and visible, tangible testimony that they did not want to carry over those realities into their generation. Now, I've seen a lot of marches. I've seen some marches that were multiracial, but not to this extent where they put themselves in the way of rubber bullets and put themselves in the way of being arrested, being battered, being, you know, uh, water hosed, being, being in the fray for real, physically, theologically, intellectually, Mm -hmm. financially. That is something that, that perhaps Martin, you know, and Malcolm, perhaps wished for or saw uh, in the spirit, but I saw it with my own eyes. And what a powerful statement that is of the bending of the arc of justice uh, in the right direction. Absolutely. I got emotional hearing you talk about it and and, and recalling mm-hmm. it because I was in many of the marches and that yes. is absolutely the truth. It's absolutely the case. In some cases, and this is not to undercut my own passion because I'm clearly passionate, but I mean, some of these young people, <laughs> I mean, these young people who benefit from the privilege were out there with more passion and more force than even some of us. It was unbelievable to watch. And it, yes. it, is, it is a blessing to see. And, and, and I, I trust that it will continue because they don't want to live in the world that uh, we've given to them. And who in their right mind would. Um, That's just really profound. Before we go too much more deep into our conversation, I want to give listeners a chance to really kind of understand who you are as a human being. Of Mm -hmm. course, I know and many people know, but a lot of my listeners are millennials and Gen Z and some have heard and some haven't. So I'd like you to unpack a little bit of uh, who you are. Tell us a little bit about who is Bishop Yvette Flunder, the woman, in terms of what's your pronoun, uh, how do you identify? And there's a couple of theological terms that have been identified with you I want to connect to. But let's start with the personal first. Who, how, what are your pronouns? Okay. How do you identify? So let's see. How do I identify? I think that's probably very important. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a person of African descent, without question. I'm also uh, a... Uh, progeny of uh, a generation of folks who were raised in the Southland. My mother is part of the diaspora and my father also from uh, Texas and uh, Southern Oklahoma. Oklahoma. And they came here uh, with their parents uh, just before World War II. Uh, So I was raised in the womb of a black family, though it was in California the womb was very black and Southern 
hence my uh, colloquial and my wonderful Black folks um, accent, which I just <laughs> love, which I will not surrender for anything. I love it. Um, I like good words like show enough. You know, that kind of stuff works for me. But <laughs> And it works so well with the um, timbre so, of your voice as well. Your, I can listen to yes, you speak yes. all night. Well, I, I love to. I would love to say that uh, it's unique to me. But if you heard my mother and my grandmother, uh, you they definitely are reincarnated in my contralto. So that's that's a very important reality. Uh, and and my uh, family was uh, deeply a part of the Church of God in Christ. We are Trinitarian Pentecostals. That's who I was raised among. Uh, that's where I learned how to clap on the two and the four, <laughs> you know, and we dance in service. Uh, we had church just about every night in the week. I have often said to people that Pentecostals talked a lot about being free from sin. I said, you know, but the rest of the story is we didn't have time for sin. <laughs> you know, by the time you got home from school and from work, you, you got a little something to eat. And you went on to church and we went to church or we went to prayer. We went to Bible study, went to choir rehearsal. Our whole lives was church. You know, that was yeah. that was the way that it was. Uh, it, the womb of, of the Black Pentecostal Church, specifically the Church of God in Christ, is what raised me up. Uh, taught me the importance of seeking a personal relationship with the divine. Uh, they had so much to do with my prayer life, my, my intimate um, worship that is not, you know, not been hampered by anything, truth be told. Um, I love to witness and enjoy and um, involve myself in personal prayer and meditation because I do believe in God. Two things, I believe in God and I believe God. Mm -hmm. I believe God. And consequently, that kind of inner life was was, uh, taught to me and encouraged when I was a kid coming along. I would probably still be a Trinitarian Pentecostal to this day if if a few things hadn't happened, one, if I had not read the Bible, there are a lot of people who quote from the Bible, proof text the Bible, essentially they arrive at their own conclusions and then they go back to the Bible and look for something to support it. Absolutely. I actually did read it <laughs> and I've read it more than once. And I, I realized that it is not infallible, that it does in places contradict itself. Uh, that it does in places suggest that there's a group of people who are special and peculiar to God and that everyone else is subordinate in some way, that the power over dynamic for slaves and for women is not at all what I embrace in what I believe about the justice heart of God. The other thing that I I wrestle with is the ecclesiology, um, where we were spending our whole lives essentially trying to get to heaven when I feel like our duty and responsibility is to bring heaven to earth, you know, that will be done on earth. I can hear Jesus praying that as it is in heaven. Um, But we spent most of our time trying to get to heaven. That's what we're trying to get to heaven. But Mm -hmm. our duty is to bring, I believe our responsibility. If we say we know the divine and are known by the divine would be to bring heaven to earth. The other thing is that I am almost 36 years in the most outstanding and incredible love relationship that any human being could ask for. 
um, surely is the answer to my heartbeat. It beats once and then beats in her heart and her beats once and beats in my heart. Oh, um, yeah. She is my gift from the divine and in so many ways. I know she's a gift to many others, but she is my gift. Uh, there would not be a city of refuge. It would not be a fellowship of affirming ministries, most likely, had it not been for her strength and her encouragement and her clarity about the call. We walked into it together. We remain into it together almost 40 years. And I'm grateful to God for her presence in my life. But my relationship with Shirley was the principal departure for me from the organization that I was born in. Yes, I ran into some issues about the fallibility of the text. But when I decided that she was chosen for me by the divine to be in my life and to help me to, to raise my daughter whose father died from HIV complications many years ago. And we raised a niece of hers whose mother, Shirley's sister, died. And they're, they're six months apart. And she was given to me and to, to my daughter. And I was given to her and to her niece. And we became a family. And it became very problematic for the church that raised me to find ways to be inclusive of the LGBT community, to find ways to be inclusive of women with a full charge of ministry. Mm -hmm. I knew I was a pastor way long before everybody said it, way long time, but, but it was not allowed in the church that I was raised in. So if, if those departures had not occurred, the likelihood is that I would still be there. Mm -hmm. If I hadn't read the Bible, if I wasn't altogether really sure that Shirley is a gift from God for my life and ministry, and if I wasn't clear that I'm a woman with a full charge of ministry, I would likely still be connected. You see, that would have, because, because I love the sound of it. I love, like I said, clapping on the two and the four, and I still dance. Yes. In service, I still sing to myself in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I still speak in tongues when I pray, but just as like breathing. So, but I cannot abide some of the other realities. And those are the things that are in so many ways a departure. And then I'll finally say this I knew myself to be called to the work of justice. I've known that also a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I have, I have, I, I can't say why it is true. I just know that it is true. And it started early, early on when I used to bring like a little bird home whose wing was broken and try to get my mother to let me keep it until it healed up, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was good with stray cats and stray dogs <laughs> and sometimes stray people, you know? early, early in my life. You know, my grandfather used to say, if you want to know what God has really called you to do, go around and see what do you find yourself doing. Mm -hmm. And I began to see what I was called to do. And when I began to see, as my grandfather said, what I was doing, that that, that really was my call, I started to say yes to it. And I've been saying yes ever since. Now, I did not have to leave by denomination, to find justice workers. There were some there, but they were not encouraged to be there. Mm -hmm. I did not have to leave my denomination to 
uh, become involved and engaged uh, in in having a relationship that was a same gender relationship. Everything just about I know about human sexuality, I learned in church. Interesting. It's not like it wasn't a whole lot going on. <laughs> the, the thing, I mean, I didn't have to leave church. <laughs> it's plenty going on. The great you know. unspoken it truth. Just, it just, but it's, you know, it was just closeted. It, it's what I, what I learned was a brand of sexuality that just did not tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And what I decided to do was tell the truth. I, I figured I could not have as, as great a person as the person God gave me and pretend that she was my prayer partner, you know, or my big sister in Christ, you know, or my, you know, adjutant. You know, she's my spouse and and my soulmate, you see. And she means too much to me to diminish her in that way. And and the the consequence of my honesty, not my my chicanery, my lying, you know, my, you know, it was my honesty. It was my truthfulness that created an exile. But I have to tell you, Brother Ricky. Yes. That the things that I learned in exile, there is power in exile. Absolutely. Exile is like passing through a very narrow canyon. You, you can't go backward. You have to go forward, and it's narrow. But if you can pass through it, the open field that is opened on the other side, makes you wonder, why did I wait so long to pass through this narrow place? You can't see it from the other end. You have to pass through the exile to get on the other side, to see things that only come by faith. When you get on the other end, it's like, Lord, have mercy. I would have done this a long time ago if I had known. But I don't think that we're permitted to really know until we get to the yea, though I walk through the valley and the shadow of death. You got to get through the valley and the shadow of death and to the other side. God was with me before I got in the, the exile. God was with me through the exile. And then God revealed God's self in incredible ways on the other side of the exile. And I am so grateful for that. So it's a long answer to a short question, but that's Listen, <laughs> that's really where my heart is about this. That was an honest and beautiful answer to a question. You're about to have me run around this room, except I'm trying to do a podcast. <laughs> so I can't get off my chair. <laughs> and I'm trying not to interrupt that's you. Good. I want to amen and praise the Lord and everything else. That praise is a profoundly Amen. moving answer and, and and the truth. I'm nowhere near where you are, but I've, you know, walked into my journey and I've said yes to God and yes. my service. I've said yes to who yes. I am as an authentic person. And the measure of freedom that I've experienced already is already profound. And I can only imagine yes. a journey like yours, what it feels like. You know, one other thing I want to do before we get any deeper is, you know, in terms of your theological point of view, um, you've been mm-hmm. defined as a womanist and, uh, Uh, Mm -hmm. in addition to being defined as a woman, as a reconciling liberation theologian. Uh, First of all, do you agree with those labels? And secondly, for my listeners, many of whom are lay people who don't know all that, you know, all that theological speak uh, in layman's Mm -hmm. terms, just kind of break down what those things mean. Yes, I am, by Alice Walker's definition, a womanist. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and by many of my um, theologian sister Ken and brother Ken and person Ken out there. Uh, I am a womanist in as much as I am not defined as feminist in in truest sense of the word only. Uh, not not because I don't owe a feminism feminism uh, a debt of gratitude for speaking out about the rights of women. But Alice Walker's concept of, of womanist suggests that uh, women of color can ill afford to separate ourselves in some way from the roles of women and the importance of women uh, in our entire family group. Essentially, we, we, we want to bring ourselves along, but we also want to bring our men along, bring our children along. Mm-hmm that if we are liberated, we can liberate. Um, None of us are free until all of us are free. That's the concept. So I'm seeking uh, to be womanist, even in Letty Russell's um, notion of the table, the round table. You know, I believe in in a round table way of leadership as versus a pyramid, a top-down table of leadership Mm -hmm. where voices are heard and opinions are heard because all of us are specialized in something, you know, and can bring something to the table. So to that degree, you know, I I understand the the table principle, but the womanist principle is community oriented. It, It suggests that the whole community needs to feed at the breasts of God. The whole community, not just women, but the whole community needs to be breastfed. You know, the the Elohim, the the concept of the many-breasted God needs needs nurture. I had a Pentecostal moment. (laughs) I'm telling you, you're waking up the Pentecostal in me right now. It'll come up. You got to watch it. It'll sneak up on you. Listen, West Angeles Um, Church of God in Christ here. Hallelujah. We understand each other. Our families were close. The Hamiltons and and the Blakes were very close to one another in in the Mm -hmm. early, early, right out of Azusa Street, Church of God in Christ. So I hear you, you know. But there's, there's a connection between what the church and the world needs now, and the world needs nurturing. I think we're coming to the end of, of these uh, these um, non-empathetic warrior types. And it doesn't take anything from manhood for nurture to take place. It does not. Not only do men and those who identify as men need to be nurtured, but need to nurture. It is a part of who we are. So it is a way that is not unique to women, but there's a womanist patina, a womanist theology, a womanist ecclesiology that has to be laid over the top of this to give us permission to think that nurturing is not weakness. Absolutely. It is not weakness. It is not weakness at all. It is in many ways the nature of God to nurture us. And that is my prayer. You see? It's beautiful. And that is why I'm thought of in that way, I think, because it is very much a part of why. And and so that is why I call myself womanist. That's that part of your question, you know. The the part of me that has to do with being a justice warrior, uh, uh, how I embrace justice, 
is there was a time in, in my life, it was justice or Jesus. I thought people that were engaged in justice just needed some more Jesus. That was just kind of the way I thought. So, honey, he's coming soon. I can't be getting in these marches and all this foolishness. You know, this. And then I, I moved from justice or Jesus to justice and Jesus, where I sort of had these dichotomous streams that run between me. One of them that was very church, one of them that was very justice oriented. They didn't like each other either, by the way, I need to tell you. <laughs> and then eventually they began to intersect, if you understand what I mean, which was also very important I internally do. for me. But then the, the third thing that I would leave you with is that I'm evolved spiritually to a place now where I call it justice for Jesus. And somebody has asked me many times, well, what in the world does that mean? Justice for Jesus don't need no help. I said, no, what needs help is the way in which Jesus has been portrayed. How in Christ's name do we get from this young 30-something-year-old 30, 30 Palestinian Jew, brown Palestinian Jew, how do we get this, this uh, supremacist, racist, homophobic, woman-hating, blood-shedding guy. How did we morph him from who he was and is, in my mind, to who we need him to become to, in some way, defend evil in the world? So justice for Jesus suggests that if we're going to say we're followers of the man from Nazareth who believed himself to be placed in time and space as the express image of God on earth, right? And that we worship him in that way in many, many places and call on his name in that way. How did we turn him in to the ruthless person who people suggest is behind all, almost all of the, the conversation, particularly coming out of conservative, conservative Christianity mm -hmm. in our nation now, but going as far back as all of the blood that was shed in his name in every war, just about the bloodiest wars that we've had. Historically, as human beings have been blamed on the divine in some way, which is unbelievable to me. And we can do that. So the end of war and the diminishment of one group of people over another, whether it's race or gender or ethnicity or whatever it is, orientation, whatever it is, stop blaming it on Jesus. Please stop. Stop using Jesus to sanctify what you hate. Don't give it to Jesus. Jesus needs some justice. Jesus needs to be returned to Jesus' original premise. And remember, when Jesus got to the temple and they were doing that, they were abusing people, forcing them to purchase things that they could not afford and selling it to them for high interest, knowing full well what they were doing was raping the people's pocketbooks. When Jesus walked into the temple and saw that happening, he tied up his stuff. 
and flipped over tables. <laughs> and you can imagine lambs and doves and pigeons <laughs> flying around all or running around all over the place. Because this, he said, you have made my father's house a den of thieves. That applies to a lot of things right now. A lot of things are tied up in that right now. Justice for Jesus is where I have landed now. <laughs> I was looking forward to this conversation all week, and let me tell you, it has not disappointed. I absolutely ad- agree with you. Uh, as I was saying, Pastor Mike and I talk about these kinds of issues all the time. I'm a deep Howard Thurman mm-hmm. fan, and it's just like, mm-hmm. what on earth would cause people to do the things and say the things and be the things they're being in the name of Jesus of all people? It's, it's unconscionable. Part of it goes back to what you talked about, though, with all the widely available mechanisms by which we could read the word most people don't read the word. They let people right. who have other agendas tell them what the word says, and that's a big part of the problem. And then half the people that are reading it, you know, don't understand exegesis, don't understand the history of it, and can't make sense of it. So it, it, it's tough. Um, you know, in many ways, it's obviously clear that we are living in a new age of the feminine. And how do you see the historically patriarchal church kind of dealing with this and moving forward, given the, the shifted energy that I very strongly sense that we're in? And it's a welcome shift, I might add. Well, I, I'd like to say this in the context of the black church, mm-hmm. because uh, we have been stolen, uh, made slaves, uh, diminished, you know, being told that we're not fully human. Uh, we know what it is to take the low end, the low bar, you know, the low on the hog, as they say, you know, versus high on the hog. We know about that. We do. That's a part of our experience, you know. And so I have often thought that people who have been diminished, uh, when they have been diminished, you know, low is low only in relationship to high. Low is not low by itself. Mm-hmm. It is low because of, it is in direct relationship to high. Right. Um, and when people are made to feel low, how are they going to feel high? They have to find somebody that is lower. That often happens among human beings. Mm-hmm. You take you take Irish. I'm I'm twelve percent Irish. Some, some slaveholder somewhere back there. Yeah. But anyway, I'm 12% Irish. And Irish people were, were the, the niggers. Mm-hmm. I don't like the colloquial, but people will know it makes sense. Of the white race, of the European races. They were lower than the French, lower than the English, lower than um, even the Scottish, to some degree, lower than the French they were thought to be the, the like the scum on the bottom of your shoe mm-hmm. in terms of a caste system. Right. They were lower. They came over here. They got involved in, 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 you know, in the United States. And actually, people of European descent created a whole new race. It's called white. Right. What is white? It's a combination of European this and that and this and that. And the Irish figured out how to up there, you know, <laughs> you intermarried. With some English and some French, and you get you, and you kick it up for yourself if mm-hmm. you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. But but they also were the most ruthless among the slaveholders in many cases when they actually migrated to the South and began and began to be slaveholders because they needed, as many people do, to diminish because they felt diminished. 
And that's a human trait. And I have seen, and it works in both directions. Just let me put it this way among us sometimes as black people, that sometimes we diminish people who are darker or have what we call bad hair as comparison to good hair, you know? Because mm-hmm. you have some good hair, you could get better jobs. There was a time. You had some good hair and some fairer skin, and you could see some white in it. And what we couldn't have as good hair growing out of our heads, we got some straightening combs and, and some, you know, some some hair grease, and we pressed our hair to look like it was straight because that made us look like at least until we sweated that we had good hair. You know, mm-hmm. what what was the concept? Again, the concept is the power over dynamic when you've been made to feel diminished. And I have found out as a woman in the context of the black church that there, the diminished people will diminish people. Absolutely. What is the answer to that? The only answer that I can think of, which I, which I work for constantly, is for diminished people to cease to feel diminished. Absolutely. We have to name it. What is it about your own self that you hate? Because you have to hate something in you to need to diminish me. And that somehow you think you may be able to get rid of that if you get a house in the suburbs or you, you know, try to get rid of your black accent or you, you know, you try to eat the food that other people eat or you try to go to the schools that other people go to or you, you know, try to think of yourself as a highborn black as compared to the lowborn blacks that that makes you you try to marry into it, marry somebody fair skin and then keep on getting fair skin you know, for your children until you can weed that thing out mm-hmm. your, your bloodline. But it is that sense of needing to take on the way, the look, the hair, the jobs of the oppressor that makes us diminish one another. How do we get free from self-degradation? Because the end of self-degradation is the end of black-on-black crime. I need to go ahead and say it. You know, black people generally don't shoot white people. We shoot each other. Mm-hmm. An end to black on black diminishment by religion. An end. How do we do it? We have got to understand. How do we understand? We have to understand that our greatness preexisted coming to this country. Absolutely. I we think had greatness. We had kingdoms. Mm-hmm. We had rulers. We had power. We had transportation. We had skills. We had uh, um, we had Egypt, a whole nation before three thousand thirty five hundred years before AD one. We had all of that that preexisted it, and we have to remember that. And move from that place, understanding not only are we equal, but we must, in our DNA, have something to teach the whole world. Africa is everybody's mother. And that's something that Black people need to understand and know. Now, I don't have my house is not bathed in Kenty Claw. Mm-hmm. I have to tell you that. I'm not walking around here with a bunch of symbolism. I'm not mad at anybody who is. I've been to Africa many, many times. 
So I'm not in romantic connection to Africa. I've been to Africa right. many times. It's real to me. We have several churches there. It is real like Southside Chicago is real to me. And Harlem is real to me. You understand what I'm saying? In Oakland, I do. East Oakland is real to me. You know, so I'm not I'm not romanticizing Africa. What I am, however, is doing is lifting up that there's something in my blood that says that I need to not self-diminish and I need to be very mindful that I don't drink the Kool-Aid that suggests that something is systemically wrong with my people. Let's get free and let's not get free later. Let's get free today. Right. Let's now. decide today, today, in this moment, that we are fearfully and wondrously made by the hand of the creator and that we are called to call up from our ancestry some answers for what it is that we need in this time. We need to know our greatness so that when we walk in a room, even if it's just one of us, our one person being there constitutes the majority. Just being in the room. We have to get that. We have to grab that so we can punch slavery in the face. You see, that is the beginning of reparations. The beginning of reparations is not somebody giving me some money to buy a house. The beginning of reparations is when I internally decide to repair. I will repair. I know who I am and I know who I am. And I ain't going to let nobody turn me around because I do know who I am and I know whose I am. And I see you, Ricky, and you see me. And in this intimate moment that we are having with those who are listening to us, we have all the power we need to do any and everything that we were sent out of eternity into time to do. We have all the power we need to do anything that we are called to do in this time. And I believe that with all my heart. And I believe that with every fiber of my being. I mean, as a matter of fact, it's why I started the podcast, because I'm convinced that... Uh, if we connect with our authentic selves and we love ourselves as a creation of God, yes. that we don't feel the need to diminish other people. And that goes for everybody. I mean, Baldwin spoke That's to right. it eloquently. What is it in you that makes it yes. important and necessary for you to have me be a nigger in the first place? That's right. All the supremacy stuff stems from that. I want to free That's our right. white brothers and sisters from that pain, from that torture, so they can free us and we can free the world from that. We're not made to do this. We're made to live. We're made to love. Right. We're made to serve each other. Why are we not doing those things? I, this is such a blessing. Um, you know, I saw you recently featured, mm -hmm. uh, as you should been, <laughs> in that wonderful mm -hmm. Black Church documentary that Dr. Henry Louis Gates did. Yes, Tell me a little I bit did. about how that came together and what that experience was mm -hmm. like for you. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, first of all, I think it's important to say that um, I've known... Dr. Gates, Skip Gates, as he makes me call him, uh, for many years. He's a wonderful brother, authentic, very much called and steeped in making sure our stories are told in every conceivable way. Mm -hmm. And for that, I am deeply grateful. Um, I enjoyed uh, working with him. We stayed, he was with me a day and a half. We spent the whole day, and then he came to worship the next day. He would not let me present him before anybody in the worship. He just... Um, participated as a worshiper. 
and we had a great time. Um, it was good to have our story told, uh, both in terms of uh, gospel music, you know, um, and Shirley's voice on a happy day. Um, this made made my day. I always always say that Shirley and I are uh, oh happy day and thank you Lord getting married, you know, to one another. So <laughs> so so we have a, a rich history, and she does with uh, the Hawkins family, and of course as as I do, uh, you know, with the Hamiltons in the, in the Church of God in Christ. Mm-hmm. And so our my my grandfather and her father were very close friends. Uh, very close friends, which you know blesses me every time I think about it. So, there there are many things that I could say about uh, the documentary, but it sewed up a lot of different things, brought a lot of things into perspective, mm-hmm. and that music is in many ways the healing bomb, the, the sort of the panacea for healing. I can sit at a at a gospel concert or a secular concert, for that matter, next to somebody who thinks that I'm the spawn of Satan for what I believe. But when the music gets good, the wall drops between us, you know, and before we know it, we're both clapping our hands. We're both weeping together. You know, we're both dancing on the floor together because it is a universal language. It breaks barriers. And it was that, it was music that broke the barriers in many ways uh, that led me to love center. I ended up going to Love Center to work with Bishop Hawkins. Bishop Hawkins was raised in the same church I was. In fact, he was raised at Ephesian, the church that my grandfather founded. And and he was, he and Edwin both, very powerful, very um, significant, very uh, life-changing, shifting gospel music to its contemporary new way, which is still holding fast. They are the fathers of contemporary gospel music. But more than that, they shifted to a theology that was radically inclusive um, that, because they began to believe like the Baptists believe mm-hmm. in eternal security. And for a Pentecostal to believe in eternal security was anathema. You know, you immediately go into hell as far as somebody's concerned. That once in, never out foolishness. No, Lord, <laughs> we now have Out the door and right now. You go into hell in the hand. It, you shall not believe it. And and the truth is, um, he did preach it and did teach it. And it was wonderful to behold. You know, I enjoyed watching it. I enjoyed listening to it. And then one day I went over there and I spent some time. I was very distressed about the church. I had started not, where I wasn't going because of all the reasons that I shared with you earlier on. Mm-hmm. And in the midst of that, I, in fact, I will be completely transparent and tell you the truth. I was pushing back against going. I wasn't going anymore, period. Um, taking my Sundays, you know, to go down by the lake and, you know, lay on the grass and stuff like that, you know. And um, I was getting ready to have one of those days, one of those Sundays. And I got a call from Lynette Hawkins Stevens' husband, Reginald Stevens called me and told me that Bishop Hawkins, then Pastor Hawkins, was out of town. And would I come and preach? Mm. I thought, Jesus, I haven't preached since heck was a puppy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, but he did call me. Mm-hmm. I actually did not know where my Bible was. I had not touched it in a great long time. And, wow. you know, I just didn't. I couldn't. And, and so my mouth said yes. 
When I hung up the phone, I was devastated because I'd said yes. I said, well, how am I going to get back in touch with him? And this was before you could get people's phone numbers, you know, right. like looking at your phone and all like that, right? Um, and I couldn't call him back. I didn't know what to do. Um, so I did two things. I went and got myself a bottle of wine. I had a bottle of wine in the refrigerator. And I was pretty proficient at rolling uh, joints. Mm-hmm. Pretty proficient. That During my time away, I, I became very proficient in at this. <laughs> And so I got one and got the bottle of wine and sat down with both of those realities and tried to see if I could get myself calmed down. And it was in that haze that the Spirit of God spoke to me. And somebody today needs to hear that. It was in that moment. Wow. You know, God gets through to us. God gets through to us. You know, in that moment, God gave me the verse, gave me the sermon title, and I took a pen put pen to paper and began to write the sermon. And I preached from the first chapter of the book of Revelation. It says, I, John, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And he went to seven different churches. You understand Mm -hmm. while he was, he was chained, say to a rock on the Isle of Patmos. He got a vision for seven different churches in Asia minor because he was transported in the spirit, even though he was chained to a rock said, how, how can you be chained to a rock and transported in the spirit? I was in the spirit and I went to the places I needed to go. I was able to perceive what I needed to perceive in spite of my oppression. And it was out of that revelation. I went to Love Center. I preached the sermon and joined the same day. I joined the church. A year later, I was the associate pastor. And then 10 years later, I was a founding city of refuge. Why am I saying this to you? Because it was the will of God for me. And during that time, gospel music drew people who, like me, felt like we would never go back to church. Mm -hmm. And they came from everywhere because he preached that inclusivity, radical inclusivity, extravagant grace. And it weren't, church wasn't just gay people, but it had to be about half of us. Mm -hmm. Which, which, you know, and, and we weren't really fully liberated to preach anything other than all people are welcome. We could not preach at that point, at the early years, why we believe we were welcome scientifically. Right. If you understand what I'm saying, we didn't know about chromosomes and we didn't know about, you know, the, 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 the origins of, of, of same gender orientations or, or people who are intersex or hermaphrodite is, is you know, call. We didn't know anything about any of that. All we knew is that the table of God was big enough and we welcomed the people. And so the people came to a Bishop Hawkins credit. And it was somewhere for me to be. And I grew and the possibilities grew and grew and grew and grew. And that is the story. That is the true story. Sylvester, Sylvester was Kojic like me. Mm-hmm. And, um, left and, and was broken. He had been used by a number of the, the men in the church where he was raised in, in, the, in the music community. He had been, and, and his heart was broken. He, he became Jewish for a time. And he called me one day, he said, Yvette, he said, listen, he said, I miss Jesus. I'll never forget it. He said, I want my Jesus back. And I told him, I said, well, I don't have any judgment for you, baby. You know, 
but your Jesus, your understandings of Jesus never left you. What he was saying to me is that he wanted intimacy, that intimacy with God that he had known as a child. And that began many of the conversations that we had right up until the day that we chose uh, his kimono and his colors, what his lipstick and his makeup and everything would be for his funeral. And I was able, Bishop Hawkins preached the eulogy and I was able to preside uh, over his funeral. What a blessing though, that he had a place to go. What a blessing. Isn't that a blessing? It's absolutely What a blessing blessing. that he had a place to go and people like him. So it is the truth and it is time for us as LGBT people out here and women preachers and black folks and anybody that's been marginalized by church and religion. We need to stop lying. Mm -hmm. Whether we lie out loud or we lie by letting people think something that is different from our reality. Why do we need to do it? You know, we need to do it so that we can normalize some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it's too late now. Where there's no going back. There are too many books written about human sexuality. Too many books written about race. There are too many books written about systems that destroy. Too many books written about how to read the text and understand what it says and what it didn't say. Too many books for us to be trifling, as my grandmother used to say, (laughs) and fall back on something simply because we don't want to believe that it's true. Yeah. And that is that is what we, we talked about, Skip and I, you know, we talked about it. And we had a discussion about it. I said there was a time I would have tolerance for a lot of the ignorance that I hear. I'm not as tolerant as I once was Mm -hmm. because there's too much information out there. If you want to know, you can know. Now, if you don't want to know, you're not going to try to know. But if you want to know, you can know. The opportunity exists. So it is a frustrating situation for me on several levels. Mm. And I'm sure for others on several levels. And I'm praying. I pray, but I also teach and I start people, you know, they come for me all the time. All the time. I've been in rooms. I've been in situations. I, I've been called to things, and then I get there, and there's a lynch mob, if you know what I mean, theological lynch mob waiting for me. Mm-hmm. And I start the people out from the very beginning. So let me tell you, because I see you all got your big Bibles, and then you have you have bookmarks in them. So you've partitioned the part of the Bible that you're going to come for me with. I understand that you got that. I got you. So let me help you from the very beginning. I am not a biblical literalist. And they go, well, what does that mean? Right? I'm, I, there are things that are very problematic for me. I, I can't quote the scripture, slaves obey your masters. I, I can't, I don't, I'm not good with that. So, and there's a few others. But I can be honest with you, I'm not a literalist. What I do with the text is I interpret it and I interrogate it. Because in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. What is the word? The word is logos. It is the expression of God. I am logos. Mm -hmm. You are logos. Mm -hmm. I am the walking word of God, just like you are the walking word of God. The texts are words about God. There's a distinct difference in the two. Huge difference. Huge and this is the conversation. And when I said that in that gathering, slowly but surely, the people started closing their great big Bibles. 
And we began to have words with each other about the word. And when we left, we were singing and praying and weeping together. Why? It is because we are not people of letter. We are the people of spirit. The letter killeth. The spirit makes alive. There's a distinct difference. So anyway, that was our... That was there you have it. that was wonderful, and that's the truth. I mean, if you're going to be a literist, why don't you pick the verses where Jesus talks about loving each other as He loved us? How about that? How about that? How if about you want to be a literalist? How about um, that? I, I want to be mindful of your time. I, I just want to end with a couple of things here. You know, this the level of despair that African Americans mm-hmm. have and are entitled to feel, given the cultural moment that we're in, is profound and and, and deeply troubling. And of course, the level of despair that all people could have right now is equally troubling. Mm -hmm. Where does your hope come from around matters of racial justice and queer rights and and just living and bringing our society together? Where where does your hope come? I suspect I know, but I want to hear it in your words. I think that despair, I don't don't diminish despair because despair is often informed by circumstances. Some people have despair because they have chemical imbalances. Mm -hmm. But despair is often informed by circumstances. And I don't want to make small of circumstances. You know, we feed hundreds of people here every month uh, here at City of Refuge with with a large, a massive, you know, food program. And people who are housing insecure, people who are food insecure, uh, uh, people who are job insecure, there's so much I could say, particularly in the pandemic. And despair, I don't want to make small of it and suggest that people don't have faith because they have despair. We have reason to have despair. What we have to be able to do is find ways to not allow despair keeping us essentially down in a deep hole such as such that we miss the golden moments for opportunity. Because despair can lead you to believe that you're not worthy of any good thing. And the consequence is many good things will pass you because your I am worthy of good things sign is not out. If you understand what I mean. I do. Despair. Profoundly understand. Despair can make you, yeah, you got me. It can make you feel like this, nothing good is ever going to come your way because you've had a series of, of difficulties. But that's what we have the power to dispel. Is the glass full or is it half empty? You know, is it half full or is it half empty? That's a decision that we have to make. And I think we have to speak those affirmations to ourselves so that when things do come our way and opportunities do come our way and chances and people do come our way, that we present ourselves as worthy and capable. If you want me to believe in you, you must believe in you. That's the aura that you have to send out. I was walking down the street late one night from one of, my, one of the churches before we bought this building. We were in San Francisco and in part of the neighborhood because I like to be in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So we were out in the neighborhood and I was by myself. I'd worked until about 11 o'clock at night and I was leaving the church on my way to the car. And as I was walking to the car, there was a um, set of footsteps behind me. 
And when I walked, they were walking. When I stopped walking, they stopped. When I kept walking, they kept walking. And their pace was picking up. And I could hear it. It was mm-hmm. a long block. So I said, okay, so we got a situation here. Mm-hmm. You know, I, this is me talking to myself. Mm-hmm. And I learned something that I learned when I was running from a dog uh, as a young child. And I was on five years old and short and round. And the dog was always chasing me and running chasing me. And there was a day when I said, this is the last time I'm going to be chased by a dog. And I turned around and I turned all the way around and leaned forward some and looked the dog in the eye. And the dog slowed down, finally started walking and then finally sat down and looked at me because that was like, okay, something has shifted. (laughs) And I could be. I could be dog wounded today. If you understand what I'm saying. The dog's <laughs> like, she's not having this anymore. <laughs> she's not having this anymore. There's, there was an aura. It's almost an aroma. It's mm-hmm. something that comes out that says, okay, we're not running anymore today. It's it's when a, a battered wife finally does boil some grits. If you understand what I'm saying. And informs the abusee. You see these grits? You are. Now something. I'm telling you now. But you understand what I'm saying. I see these grits? Fully. You understand? You understand? You're not going to be able to sleep here. You got like one more time. Uh, that's all you got. And it happens. Your mama not going to. I think the same. The same concept is the truth about our feeling diminished and feeling despair. And so when that man was walking behind me, I said, "So I got to think of something to do this." And I remember me and the dog. So I reached in my pocket and put my hand in my pocket and held my hand up a little bit. And I said, I turned around and said, I said, are you following me? No, I ain't following you. I said, but you seem like you are. Because when I walk, you walk. When I stop, you stop. And then I said to him, so let me just say to you, sir, this is me talking to him. You have no idea what I'm carrying, which, by the way, was my hand in my pocket. Mm -hmm. I said, you have no idea what I'm carrying. But, but I need you to understand that you will not win this battle. So he looked at me. Those are my words to him. He looked at me kind of like that dog did that day. And he changed his mind. Do you understand what I'm saying? It just wasn't worth it. Because it's like nobody's going to turn around and say that unless they got something. Well, <laughs> well, what I had was not a weapon of mass destruction. What I had was the confidence that my confidence said, and I can't tell you where it comes from unless you just decide you're going to have it. My confidence said, this could end very badly for one or both of us. It could end very badly. Greater is God who is in us than the God of this world. Either we believe it or we don't. Greater is God who is in us than the God of this world. Greater is God who is in us than the God of this world. You can speak that to poverty. You can speak that to addiction. You can speak that to church. Greater is God who is in us. Speak it to this government than the God of this world. And when we change, we change things. And if I could say anything to people, if I could say anything to black people in this moment, yes, we have a pandemic. Yes, white supremacists are are running scared and desperate like real bad children on the playground. And I do know it. I see it. I understand it. Trying to change systems and trying to change them permanently so that we will permanently be subjected because what they feel very deeply is that they are losing power and they are correct. 
They are losing power. There's no ifs, ands, and buts about that. They are losing power. If for no other reason than my baby grandson is 11 years old, when he is a grown man, people of color will be the majority in this nation. Because women of color are not having low birth rates. European women are having low birth rates. All of this talk about abortion doesn't have anything to do with women of color. It has everything to do with the fact that women who are not women of color are not bringing their pregnancies to full term. That is the fear. When we become the majority, we're the majority everything. Why do you think that there's all of this effort in changing the voting laws to try to keep the people who are people of color from having their votes counted and the people who empathize with people of color. So you change all the laws. We all we're going to do is change the pattern because we got it now. Thank you, Stacey Abrams. We got it now. Thank you, Warnock. Thank you so very much. We got it. We got it. We'll just figure out how to do it again. We're not afraid of the dog. We're not afraid of the man walking behind us on the alley. We have to understand our greatness. That would be my word, my final word. Understand our greatness in this time. We have overcome chattel slavery. We have overcome burnings, lynchings, drownings, being roasted, being raped, being used in the field, used in the prison system, used in sharecropping. We know about this. Let's gain power from it. Hallelujah. Let's gain power from it. Hallelujah. 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 And let's get ready to lead right out of our exile. Let's get ready to teach people what it means to survive. Because if anybody knows, we know. That is my hope and my prayer that greatness will come. Greatness will come and, and engage our consciousness such that we get in right position. The whole world needs to learn from the people who have survived exile. God bless you, Ricky. God Isn't bless it? you. Thank you so much for joining me today, Bishop Fonder. Um, people can listen to sermons online still? Yes. Where can they listen? Give us the address. We have a City of Refuge. Just look for City of Refuge UCC on Facebook. And all of our stuff is there. The other, the other presence we have is the Gatekeepers, which is also on Facebook. On my Facebook page, Bishop Yvette Flunder, you can find... Uh, the gatekeepers where we have political conversations all the time uh, with Bishop Pearson, who is the co-host that works with me and us and, and Bishop elect Vanessa Brown. Uh, she is the person who does the questions and Dr. we Brown. and our guests do the conversations, you know? And so you can find us on Facebook, Bishop Yvette Flunder and find us on Facebook city of refuge, United church of Christ. And you will hear our sermons and our, conversations. Yes. Well, we will do that. I will share that with all the listeners. And I thank you again for coming today. I was blessed. I know the listeners have been blessed and I appreciate you so much. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your day. You too. And we'll talk soon. You too, brother. We love you with the love of God. Take good care. Love you as well. Thank you. I will. You too. Bye. What a wonderful conversation with a wonderful person. Bishop Yvette Flunder is a treasure. She's an inspirational figure driven by love and focused on justice as it emerges from the heart of God. She's a living reminder of the importance of reading the Bible or whatever sacred text that you follow for yourself so that you don't allow other people and their agendas to lead you astray. 
She's tenacious when necessary, tender at her core, and thoroughly authentic. She's a reminder of the power of love, the importance of inclusivity, and a symbol of the call of God to live this life as the person you were created to be. Bishop Flunder is also a symbol of the power and the gift of authenticity. How not to allow others to define you on any terms other than your own or to define Jesus as anything other than the justice warrior, embodiment of the divine and the living word of God that he is. This life is too short, too precious, too important to waste a single moment living any life other than the lives we were created to live, to do anything less than loving beyond the limits of our prejudices, or to waste our gifts on the gathering of material trinkets when we could use our gifts to serve and uplift others. It's Women's History Month, and so we celebrate women all month. For me, I celebrate women every day. When you hear a prophetic voice speaking with as much clarity, honesty, and power as Bishop Flunder, it baffles the mind that women were not allowed to preach, teach, or otherwise lead in the church with any regularity until recently, and still are not allowed to serve in some denominations and in many churches to this day. Equally troubling is the fact that so many of our churches thrive as a result of their music ministries, but seek to silence the queer voices that are often responsible for those ministries and so many other acts of service. LGBTQ voices like Bishop Flunder have often led the march towards equal rights, but have also been purposefully overlooked and erased. It is my sincere hope that Bishop Flunder's life is an inspiration to each of us to go deep inside ourselves and to meet our true selves waiting there and to give ourselves a long, deep hug. To tell ourselves how much, how much we love ourselves and the power who created us. And then to embrace that spark of divinity that exists inside each of us and indeed powers each of us to move through our days in a way that brings honor to the gift that is this life and to bring glory to the one who created us. When we learn to love ourselves, perhaps then we can cease seeking to diminish others and to begin to live life joyfully and with grace. I thank you again for joining us this week. My name is Ricky Day and this is Nothing to Lose But Yourself. Don't forget to follow on Instagram, nothing to lose but yourself. Follow my personal social media, Ricky Day, R-I-C-K-Y-D-A-Y on Twitter and on Instagram. And yes, that cash app is dollar sign Ricky Day, R-I-C-K-Y-D-A-Y. If you feel so inclined, drop a donation. I appreciate it. Until then, spread the word, subscribe, rate, review the, pop- the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And wherever you listen to podcasts, I'm also now listed on Podchaser. So you can follow us and rate us there. Until then, have a wonderful week. Give yourself a hug and love and embrace your authentic self. And perhaps that'll make it easier for you to avoid trying to diminish someone else. You can look in somebody else's eyes, see their humanity, 
and love them as a creation of God that they are and as a human being that they are. I love you. I mean it. Have an amazing week. Have an amazing day. Have an amazing now. Because at the end of the day, now is all there really is. I'm Ricky Day, and this is Nothing to Lose But Yourself. Join us every week as we endeavor to change the world one conversation at a time.